Good morning. Today's scripture is John chapter 6, verses 35 through 47. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So here's the deal, Kingsway. This preacher set out weeks ago to do most of John 6 in one sermon. Some call me optimistic. You can ask my beautiful bride. Last Sunday, I decided to do it in two parts. This week, I pushed it to three. <laughs> and I consoled myself in the failure to stick with the original plan, because that's one of those planner types, in recognizing whether or not this has yet been your experience, whether or not you're a believer, this chapter is food for the soul. And I think especially if you've been following Jesus for a long time or some time, this is one of the places in God's word that we really do well to not rush through familiar verses, rush through familiar things, but to really slow down and think about them. So we're gonna take our time and next week, we're still going to be in John 6 to the glory of God. But I want you to think about this as we get jump back in here. Lord, would you bless this preaching of your word? Have, have you ever done, speaking of planning, all the planning, you've, you've gathered all the supplies, all the equipment you thought you needed, and for some reason, the home improvement project or the car repair project still didn't work. Anybody ever experienced that, that sense of 
futility. It, it's maddening. And I think YouTube's made it more maddening because it, because it looks so easy on YouTube. Why, why is this not working in real life right now? Or you read all the required books. You attend all the class lectures. You study all the review materials and you still fail the final exam. I want to ask you to raise your hand for that one. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe you have, so you think, all the pieces in place to make a big sale in your job, and the contract still falls through the morning it was supposed to be signed. Or you have spent thousands of hours practicing, but on the day of the tournament, you can't hit a ball to save your life. What, what's... What's happening in those moments? What, more like, why isn't it happening? Why, why isn't this coming together? Everything seems primed for success, but success remains as elusive as, as ever. It, it happens in this physical realm all the time. Just give you a few examples. We have less control over our life than we think we do. But the same principle holds true spiritually, brothers and sisters. In John 6, Jesus has just finished explaining several things. That pursuing the satisfaction of your soul is your most important work. That satisfaction of soul is only obtained through faith in Jesus. And Jesus satisfies our soul through the gift of himself. We saw all of that last week. And what does all that require or demand of you? That, that we make trusting Jesus the supreme ambition of our life because only he can satisfy your soul. That's what it requires. John 6, 35, central verse in this whole chapter, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It, it seems so clear. <laughs> it's simple and, and so obvious. I mean, given, think about this, given Jesus alone can satisfy your soul. Why would anyone not choose? Seriously, think about this. Why, why would anyone not choose to make trusting him the supreme ambition of your life? Why, why would we not do that? Look at verse 36. But I said to you, that you have seen me and you still do not believe. I find that to be one of the most terrifying verses in the entire Bible. For this reason, you can have all this exposure to Jesus. 
All, all this experience of Jesus, all this knowledge of Jesus, and you can still refuse to lean the weight of your life on him. Why is that the case? Well, first, because the pride of human reason is never satisfied. It's just not. Jesus knew that that there was no sign he could provide, no supernatural work he could perform that would ever be enough to convince anyone, any one of us, to stop living as if we are God and start worshiping the one true God. And second, even if we decide or know that the life we need comes from God, let's be honest, we don't want to receive it as an unmerited gift. What do we want? What do you, what do you want? We want to earn it, right? We don't, we, look at verse 29. We don't like the truth of verse 29 that the only work God requires is the obedience of faith. We don't like that. And so our hearts are hard and our minds are proud. And as J.C. Ryle observes of every man and woman, listen carefully, it is not true that he would come if he could. It is true that he could come if he would. What's he saying? That, That our biggest problem is not a lack of power to come to Jesus. It's a will to come to Jesus on his terms, not ours, for who he really is, not who we like to think he is or fancy he is in the quiet of our own minds. And so verse 36 really begs this question, what hope do we have? Given those spiritual obstacles within us, What what hope do we have? Well, here's the good news of the gospel, friends. Hear this loud and clear, okay? God doesn't just have the life that we need or the life that you need. God is also the one who acts decisively to impart that life to us. He He doesn't just have it in his pocket or in his safe or in his hard drive or whatever storage device you use. He acts to give it to you. So here's the main point of this entire middle section, 35 through 47 as I see it. Faith in God is a work of God, period. Why is that the case? Let me give you two reasons. First, because the will of God is sovereign. Why is faith in God a work of God? Two reasons. First one, because the will of God is sovereign. Throughout this whole chapter six, there's something you got to remember, okay? Coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are two ways of saying the same thing. So the parallel in verse 35 couldn't be clear on that front. They both describe the activity of faith or trust that turns away from creating life for ourselves and turns toward finding life in God. So if you want to experience satisfaction of soul, the the life that is truly life, what do you have to do? You have to choose to come to Jesus. You have to choose to believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus is absolutely essential. But, you feel this coming, you know, what, what enables hardened hearts like ours to do that 
after, after maybe years of trying to run away from Jesus as far as possible, as fast as possible? Or, or what hope do we have that even having come to Jesus, we'll persevere in trusting Jesus to the end of our days? Or, or what ultimately ensures the success of Jesus' mission in the world? You ever thought about that? Look at verse 37. This is incredible, friends. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I'll put this as simply as I can. The answer to all those questions I asked earlier has absolutely nothing to do with you or me. It has everything to do with the sovereign power of Almighty God. That's the answer. And he is sovereign in two respects. First, God is sovereign over the onset of faith, Jesus is saying. Every sinner the Father has chosen for salvation as an unmerited act of mercy and entrusted to the Son so that he might save them to the uttermost, will not fail to come to Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying, not John Calvin. And as the Apostle Paul marvels in Ephesians 1 verse 4, listen to this, he, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world. And he, Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. What is Jesus himself talking about here, friends? It's it's the God-exalting, man-humbling, biblical doctrine of election. That his sovereign will doesn't just make the invitation of life in Christ possible. It is what ultimately brings life in Christ to pass in your life. In other words, there there is a divine activity of appointing that proceeds, that comes before the human activity of believing. And it's what enabled Jesus to not lose heart. Let's stick with the context here. This isn't a proof text. It enabled Jesus to not lose heart in the midst of his own ministry. You can see that. Amidst what? Widespread unbelief. No, No matter how many times... You see me, guys, and do not believe. No matter how many times you hear my word and refuse to submit, this I know, this Jesus knew. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He knew that. His eternal purpose, his sovereign will from eternity past to to redeem men and women for himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus won't fail to come to pass. So Christian... Know this, it is not the perfection of someone else's prayers or the proficiency of someone else's words that caused you to come to Christ. It's not. And listen, the perfection of your prayers and the proficiency of your words does not determine whether someone else will come to faith in Christ. Does God command us to pray? 
Yes. Does God command you to speak? Yes. But he has not set up the board and then left it up to you or me to determine the outcome. He reigns. That's Jesus' point. God rules, which does what? It frees us to pray joyfully and speak boldly and do it all with this abiding confidence that God's kingdom will come. Not because of our will or our faithfulness, but because of his will and his faithfulness to the praise of his glory, not yours. That's, that's, that's comforting. <laughs> that, that compels us to pray compels us to speak. He's sovereign over the onset of faith. Second, and in the same vein, God is sovereign over the endurance of faith. Look back at verse 37. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Christian, have you ever, just kind of quiet of your own mind, stepped back and thought about your life? And thought about all the future troubles that could come your way before you die. All the tests of faith. Trusting God in the past was hard enough, right? Maybe trusting God in the present feels exceedingly difficult. What, what hope do you have that your faith in Jesus will not completely fail in the future? We really don't have any if you're just looking at yourself, do you? I mean, if we're being honest, our, our faith is so weak, so feeble, so so, well, I felt like trusting Jesus yesterday, but I went to bed and I don't know what happened, but I woke up this morning and it's all just like, gone. Well, if your answer to what hope do you have starts with any form of because I, you were on dangerous ground, friends because you don't know what tomorrow will bring, let alone how you will respond spiritually. You can hope, you can desire, but, but what can you know for sure? Only this Christian, that he who began a good work in you will not fail to bring it to completion. And that if you've come to Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus right now, not, not perfectly, but faithfully, Jesus himself will see to it that your faith endures to the end of your days. And so when you hear the voice of fear saying, well, pastor, I'll grant you he might never cast me out, but what if I run off myself? You ever wondered that? Well, remember this. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus will never cast you out, 
and Jesus will never allow you to remain lost. That's his point. The great shepherd, in other words, is not bound or obligated by some cosmic fabric of the universe to let sheep wander out of the fold and never come back on account of an obligation outside of himself to uphold the freedom of your will. No. (laughs) Okay, if the great shepherd brings you in to the fold, The great shepherd will keep you in the fold and he will bring you back if you wander out of the fold as many times as that is necessary. Because he's what? He's he's the God. Yes, he's faithful and he's able. And he shows us how that that he's the God who leaves the 99 to go after the the one. That's, That's the kind of shepherd he is. None whom the God the Father has entrusted to the Son for salvation will be lost. All will be saved and all will be raised to eternal life on the last day. And as Leon Morris says, this thought is of the greatest comfort to believers. Their assurance, listen, is not based on their feeble hold on Christ, but on his sure grip on them. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. So we're going to sing a song called what? He will hold me fast later this morning. You you couldn't have a better anchor for your soul, Christian. Think about this. Nothing less than the son's perfect obedience to the will of his father guarantees your perseverance in the faith. You realize that? That the son... Jesus can no more stop obeying the Father than he could fail to sustain your feeble faith. He could not have provided a stronger guarantee for his faithfulness to us. The sovereign will of the Father, fulfilled by the Son, ensures your resurrection. So, application question, what should we do How then should we live given faith in God as a work of God? Both in its onset and its endurance. Should we toss up our hands in resignation? Should we give in to a life of spiritual passivity? I mean, I've heard this from different people in different ways. If this whole sovereign will of God thing is true, then why does it matter what I do or how I choose to respond to Jesus? Why does it matter? Well, good question. It's like Jesus knows the questions we're asking. Funny. Look at verse 40. (laughs) Look at verse 40. Because here Jesus tells us how to respond to the will of God. Do you go passive? Do you go apathetic? Do you go case or asarana? What do you do? Verse 40. What's he say? For this is the will of my father, the revealed will of God, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Translation, how you choose to respond to Jesus matters exceedingly, friend. It's exceedingly important. Because unless you look on the Son, what was Jesus saying? Unless you look on the Son and believe in him, you will not have eternal life. You'll die in your sins. You'll be condemned by God on account of your sins, chief among them, your failure to believe and obey King Jesus. 
But, but know this as well. Look back at verse 40. It's not just a fearful warning. It's an incredibly great promise. That, that if you choose right now, right here today, to look on the Son and believe in him, if you stop trying to create life for yourself in this world and start looking to Jesus, to God, to give you life and satisfy your soul through relationship with him, then, then you will close your eyes in death only to open them and awake to see the lover of your soul. That's the promise. There, there are, you may have caught this earlier, but in 13 verses, there are three times that Jesus makes up this promise to whoever trusts in him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Did you notice that when Jody was reading? You, you almost think, well, you know, Jesus, you need an editor. Like, you said that. Okay? Say something new. Why would he repeat that? Again and again and again. Well, I think it's because right now it feels like today matters most. Maybe closely followed by tomorrow. <laughs> or next week or, or the next year. But none of those days, friend, compare to the eternal importance of the last day. That's what Jesus is saying. That, that's why he's repeating himself. Because on that day, the, the day Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, your, your eternal destiny will be determined. You're, you're not going to get a, a do-over or a second chance or get graded on a curve. So, so don't wait, friend. You, you want to know what should you do given the fact that the will of God is sovereign? Don't wait. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. <laughs> That's what you do. Don't delay. Tomorrow could be your last day. And if you're trusting him, then rest in knowing that he will not fail to keep you to the end and raise you up to eternal life. So why is, why is faith in God a work of God? Big reason number one, because the will of God is sovereign. Such a comfort. Big reason number two, because the work of God is effectual. It's effectual. It gets done. God gets done everything he sets out to do. Unlike us, with all our projects and all our plans. You know, to the Jews listening to Jesus, you see this in verse 41, his, his words made no sense. It, it just no sense. How, how could this man be God? How, how can he claim to have, have come down from heaven, verse 42, and do what only God can do, raising people from the dead? giving them eternal life. You realize Jesus, Jesus is, is, he's not operating in existing categories for his listeners. He's, he's claiming divine prerogatives. He's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I've done this and I'm about to do that. And in their minds, what is all of that? It's stuff only God can do. And they're thinking, I know his mom. I know his dad. I remember watching him pick his nose. No way. No way. You're Jesus. 
you make furniture. And that too terrifies me, friends. We're right back to verse 36. Because God himself was literally standing in front of them. You've heard somebody say, I believe in Jesus, but there's just not enough evidence. God himself is preaching the gospel to them. They still won't believe. That should sober you. That should, in a good way, freak you out a little bit. Because that screams that there is something deeply wrong in the heart and mind and affections of every man. J.C. Ryle writes, we shall do well to remember this if we ever try to do good to others in the matter of religion. We must not be cast down because our words are not believed or our efforts seem thrown away. If even he so perfect and so plain a teacher, was not believed. What right have we to wonder if men do not believe us? Happy are the ministers and the missionaries and teachers, and I might add, and parents, who keep these things in mind. It will save them much bitter disappointment because in working for God, it is of first importance to understand what we must expect in man. Few things are so little realized as the extent of human unbelief. Not just out there, but but in here. So, yet in the face of all that, Jesus doesn't lose heart. You notice that in the face of that unbelief and nor should you Christian when you're talking about Jesus to your kids or to your family members or to your neighbors, Jesus continues to rest in the sovereignty of God and so should we. Look at verse 44. What does he say? No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So to the assurance of election and the comfort of the the perseverance of the saints, what's Jesus add here? The promise of effectual calling. In other words, the the father doesn't just appoint people to come to Jesus and and then watch from his lazy boy as, all my plans always come to pass. I just love power. (laughs) No, not at all. He actively works and moves in the world. He draws, he woos, he he turns, he transforms hearts of men to draw to Jesus all that he has purposed to grant life in Jesus. And and think about this, because this is the big next question, okay? How does God the Father do that? How does he draw? 
How does he take a hardened, cold, unbelieving heart? How does he take you and me, Christian, once we've decided to follow Jesus, but but find ourselves continuing to slip back into doubt and unbelief? How How does he take men like that, women like that, and draw them? Well, it's through the power of his word. Look at verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, Jesus says, comes to me. Everybody who's heard and learned from the Father. But but there's a problem here. There's a problem. No one has seen the Father except the Son. And by seeing, Jesus doesn't just mean fixing his physical eyes on the Father. He means the sight of the Father that he alone has eternally enjoyed is a sight that consists of intimate knowledge, a sight that results in comprehensive understanding so that because no one else has seen the Father except the Son, no one else is qualified to reveal or make known the Father except the Son. And here's what that means for us. The word we hear from the Father that that draws us, that the knowledge we learn from the Father that, that awakens faith to believe in Jesus does not come to us directly. It's mediated, it's revealed to us through the person and work of the Son. So how does the Father teach us How do we hear from him? How does he instruct us now that God the Son has ascended back into heaven? You might think that feels like up a creek without a paddle. (laughs) If only the Son knows the Father and only the Son can reveal the Father and we need all that in order to come to faith because that's how the Father draws us, well then, uh uh-oh, the Son left. How's that happen now? Well, the Holy Spirit takes the word written, which bears testimony on every page and every corner to the word made flesh, and he opens our eyes such that we see Jesus for who he is, we trust Jesus for who he is, and then we are compelled and equipped and enabled to go and follow Jesus for who he is. That's how it happens, that the substance of the Father's speech that draws us, the content of his instruction that compels us to come is revealed through Jesus, is all about Jesus, and directs us back to Jesus. In summary, because you could write really long papers on just this short section of verses, Jesus, remember this, He's both the means through which the Father draws us and he's the one to whom the Father draws us. He's the means, he's the end. And that effectual work he accomplishes through the word of the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, a word that that announces, what's the gospel? The word of the gospel all that God has done for us in Christ to accomplish salvation for mankind. 
That's the gospel, that that Jesus lived for you and he died for you and and he rose from the grave so that death wouldn't have the final word over your life if you're willing to repent and believe. That's the good news of the gospel. And here's what Jesus is saying, where it is truthfully proclaimed from every corner of the word, where the gospel is proclaimed. Guess what happens? God the Father, through that word of the gospel, draws men and women to God the Son. That's how he does it. And apart from that effectual work, none of us would be saved. None of us. Which which means, think about this this week, Christian. Means this, okay? An arrogant Christian is a contradiction in terms. An arrogant Christian. What? (laughs) Is a contradiction in terms. Why? Why? Leon Morris says it well. The thought of the divine initiative in salvation is one of the great doctrines of this gospel and indeed of the Christian faith. People like to feel independent. Any takers on that? Yeah, right? People like to feel independent. They think that they came or that they can come to Jesus entirely of their own volition. Jesus assures us that this is an utter impossibility. No one, No one at all can come unless the Father draws him. Because it's the Father who opens our ears, friends. It's the Father who instructs our hearts. Unless the Father draws you, you cannot come. And so what hope do we have? This, that through the effectual work of the gospel, the Father is in the business of drawing men and women to himself. That's our hope. When Jesus says in verse 47, look there with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He is not inviting you to do what is humanly possible. He is calling you to do what God alone has made possible because his will is sovereign and and his work is effectual put those together and what do we get that faith in God is always a work of God faith in God is a work of God so to all my non-Christian friends listening to me right now do not despair please do not despair if if you feel utterly incapable of bringing yourself to God or mustering faith in your own soul. You ever felt that? Well, if you have, know this, you can't do those things. You can't bring yourself to God. You can't can't muster faith in your own soul. That's the whole point. Life in Christ isn't a work of merit. It's a gift of God's grace. God is eager and faithful to pour out his grace by by drawing sinners to himself, enabling you to do what apart from God you could never do. And to all my Christian friends, I want you to remember this this week. Especially when you are tempted to smugly congratulate yourself for how your wisdom or your superior life choices have delivered you to where you think you are. 
Remember this. You did not bring yourself into this land of blessing. You didn't. You you didn't walk yourself into the kingdom of God. You can't. The Father chose you. That the Father drew you. And even now, the Son is preserving you because otherwise, you and I and every other Christian on the face of the earth would inevitably walk ourselves right back out. Ephesians 2.8. In summary, all this, well, it's not your own doing. <laughs> it's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. You, Christian, you are not better than anybody else around you. God, God laid his hand on you. That's all. You're, you're, not, a, you're not a self-made Christian man. You're, you're not a self-made Christian woman. You, what are you? Who are you? You're a trophy of grace. That's all you'll ever be. Because God doesn't just have the life we need. He's the one who decisively acts to impart it to us. Let's pray. Father, for some of us, it is not hard to conceptually or mentally acknowledge or agree that unless you draw us, we cannot come. Or unless you choose us, we will not come. Or unless you preserve us, we will not remain. There are those among us who have heard all that before and believe it to be true. But Heavenly Father, you also know that it is oh so easy for none of those precious promises to remotely inform our own confidence when we think about our future with you or our own joy in praying for people around us that don't know you or our own boldness in continuing to speak the effectual word of the gospel to our kids when it has yet to bear any fruit. Lord, then, suddenly, we see perhaps we don't believe all those things we actually thought we did. And so I pray this week, Lord, especially for brothers and sisters listening who fear that someone they dearly love seems utterly incapable of ever turning and coming to you. I pray right now that you would fill that brother sister's heart, that parent's heart, with faith in the sovereign will and power of God 
not because we know all that you will draw to yourself, but because we know that ultimately that person's salvation rests not upon us in the least. It rests completely on you. And that your ways are good and right and sovereign and you are mighty to save. Lord, I pray you would guard those men and women from trying to to guess at your secret will and to focus on obeying your revealed will in praying earnestly that their friend or their spouse or their child would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And then lastly, Lord, I pray for my non-Christian friends who find themselves in a curious way they cannot understand wanting the joy of relationship with you, but feeling powerless to genuinely believe in you or come to you. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would help them to not despair, but to cast themselves on a sovereign God who is able and mighty and willing and faithful to give us faith that we cannot create for ourselves. Lord Jesus, grant the miracle of faith, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, friends.